0: The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Amen. Good morning. Thank you, Brother Dan. Let's look to the Lord and pray before we get into our prayer with our brothers and sisters in Christ and study your word. And I ask that you be with us in your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today we're coming to the second commandment. And it's one of the longest out of the ten. If you look at them, each commandment takes a line or a couple of, or a sentence. But the second commandment, for whatever reason... Takes up verses four through six. It's fairly long. Let's look at it and it's in Exodus chapter twenty, verses four through six. It says, You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I The Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. That pretty much covers the waterfront, doesn't it? Nothing on the ground, nothing in the sea, nothing in the sky. In other words, Israelites were not allowed to represent God in any kind of form or anything at all in using any kind of creation. Now, remember, Israelites are coming out of Egypt, and they've been living with the Egyptians who worshiped many gods, and many of those gods were represented by different types of animals. God, if you watch the movies, you see a falcon head, right? That's their god, uh, Horus. If you watch the, the, the jackal, is their god, uh, Anubis, and so on. So when it came to Egyptians... Any kind of animal was fair game. They created different types of idols. But God of Israel refused to be represented by any image, not just the image of animals or any kind of, or any image pictures or anything like that for that matter. You see, men have wanted always to have a picture of God. Have you ever pictured what God looks like? Or try to with your mind. We want to always, there's a frustration among us because of, of this invisibility of God. We don't get to see Him, we don't get to lay our eyes on Him. You know, we live in this physical world as we do where we see things. We know He's there, but we can't see Him. And that kind of frustrates us once in a while, doesn't it? We close our eyes and we pray, hey, what am I supposed to see? Nothing, because God's invisible. He's invisible. And because we live in the physical world of five senses, we have a temptation to create an image of God to help us visualize God, what God looks like, and so forth. A pastor was talking to a boy, and the boy was doodling on a piece of paper, and Vada said, hey son, you are drawing a picture? She said, yeah. He said, well, what are you drawing? He said, I'm drawing God. He said, well, nobody knows what God looks like. He said, well, they will when, I'm, when I get through. You know, we can, we can take our paints, we can take all this stuff, all the sculptures, but we will never, ever, ever with the visible material things that we have be able to represent the great immoral, invincible, eternal, spiritual God. There's nothing. In Romans 1.23, Paul writes, And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God. Glory of God, incorruptible God. How, 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 how they changed it? An image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And he continues in verse 25, he says, "Exchange the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So mankind always had the tendency to do this to create little gods. And man's bowed down before creeping things, you know crocodiles, dogs, frogs, whatever you want to name it, they bow down to images. And we don't even have to leave the book of Exodus. The, the, the Israelites did the same thing. In Exodus 32, verses 1 through 5, we find this, and Aaron kind of gets in trouble. And when the people saw Moses delayed coming from down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's ha- happened, become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings, which were in the ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it into with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, or Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. That's pretty insane. And throughout history, you see Israelites, the children of Israel, uh, they had this constant problem violating this commandment. So looking at this commandment, I want to look at three things. And the first thing I want to look at is we need to have a proper conception of God. Man's worship of God is not correct until we have the right concept of who God is. And now, I don't know everything about every single one of you, but I do know one thing. You have this instinctive desire to worship God. It's true for men everywhere. Man, by nature, by instinct, by creation, needs to worship something, right? You see, you, you, Even missionaries go down, to, you know, go, go down to Africa, they find somebody worshiping something. No one is ever born an atheist. You have to be taught that in schools and so forth. And men's desire to worship God is is instinctive as, as breeding. We all want to worship something. And in the first commandment we read, it tells us about the right God, the only God. We have no other gods. The second commandment tells us how we are to worship properly that God. The first commandment forbids us from false gods. The second commandment forbids us from false worship. And before we do anything, I think it's very important that we learn how to worship God properly. Why do we get saved? Why do we get saved? People get saved so we can worship God. That's why people get saved. The bottom line is not salvation of the souls. The bottom line is the glory of God. The glory of God. To worship God, to know God, love God, serve God. And this is the reason God forbid all these graven images to be made in his image. It, because it rep- misrepresents God. So if you look at Exodus verse 20, chapter 20, verse 4, it says... You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that's on earth beneath or that's in water underneath the earth. So, folks, again, the reason that a graven image is wrong, it gives you the wrong conception of God. You know, there's a graven image is physical. Material thing. God is spiritual. So no material thing can properly represent the spiritual God. Look with me in John 4.20. We'll read for, uh, to verses 20 through 24. It says, Our fathers worshipped us, worshipped on this mountain. Remember the, Samaria, the, the woman that Jesus is talking to here? She says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. So therefore, they're already creating the idol of a place. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. Will you neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such worship to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So there is no object, no matter how beautiful, no place or location that can represent God. And another reason is my one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Isaiah forty twenty five. But we'll start reading from verses nineteen in Isaiah forty nineteen through twenty one twenty five. Says the workman molds an image, the goldsmith. Overspreads it with gold and silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. So somebody's making an image, they're using all these fine tools and materials gold, silver, and so forth. But then he says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and it's its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like the curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. When he will also blow on them, they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stumble. And verse 25. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal? Says the Holy One. No matter what image of God it is, it can't be like God. Do you see? Because there's only one God. Therefore, there's nothing that can represent God. There's nothing you can compare him to. And you know, comparison is always dangerous. Um, once I heard a man who was absolutely out-and-out out, terrible sinner. He was a drunkard, gambler, an adulterer, a profane man. He had a brother, and his brother wasn't even, wasn't any better. He was a horrible man too. And then the one of the brothers died, and the surviving brother went to the pastor and said, I'll, I, I would like for you to conduct a funeral for my brother. He said, all right, I'll do that. And he says, well, I have one request. He says, yeah, sometime during the service, you call my brother a saint. He says, well, I can't do that. He said, well, if you do, I'll donate $500,000 to your church. He said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll pray on it. So when the preacher arrived at the funeral and the dead man was in the casket, the preacher looked down at the casket and said to the people sitting in the pews, said, I want you to know that this man in the casket was a drunkard, a gambler, adulterer, profane man, but compared to his brother, he was a saint. So comparison are dangerous. And God asked this question, what are you going to compare me to? What are you going to liken me to? You see, I can compare, for example, pianos. We have a piano here, or a keyboard, for this. I can compare cars. You know, I don't know a Mercedes to a BMW, whatever you Cadillac, whatever you want. A Honda. We can compare cars. There's no two kinds of image of God. What are you, what are you going to compare God to? And who wants a bad picture in circulation? Do you want a bad picture of you in circulation? We're careful when we take pictures, right? Now on cameras, we have little even little photo things that edits photos and so forth. We want to look great, yeah, right? Where there's beauty, we take it. When there's none, we make it, right? Those are the kind of photographers we want. And I'm sure some of us even have a, probably a photo in our pocket right now, our driver's license photo that we're not too fond of, right? Sometimes when, you know, I... I broke the law. I got pulled over last week. And, you know, sometimes you even make an excuse that's a bad picture of me on the the license. You know, you you even apologize for that picture. What's wrong with that picture? Well, the camera that took the picture of you, it diminished you. It lessened your glory. And when God is worship in some visible form... The glory of the invisible God is degraded. Why? Because God is spirit. He's an omnipotent. He's, he's omnipresent spirit, all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign God of the universe, creator for all things, heaven, earth, both visible, and invisible, and so forth. So God cannot be bottled up. His glory cannot be formed or sculpted in any image whatsoever. No imagination of men can, can, can create a picture of God. You see, men's thought, man, thoughts, or even on his best day, right? Descriptions, images of God, they're totally incomplete and inadequate, inadequate. Why? Because on your, even on your best day, you're still a man. You're still a man, which means you're limited to your intellect. You're limited to your skills. You're limited to your resources. So whatever you will make will also be limited. And we cannot use limited means... To reach an infinite being. As spirit is beyond the universe. He sits at the top of the circle of the universe. Heavenly, he extends beyond God's presence and knowledge is everywhere. He sits above the circle of earth. And God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. You know, in some services we'll still find images today. We're like, why are we talking about images? We don't have any images and so forth. Roman Catholic Church. You know, pick up my brothers in the Russian Orthodox Church. That's just beyond insane of images and relics and saints and bones that they use. And when you talk to them, you know, they call themselves Christians and you you know what they say? This image is not, uh, it's not that I'm worshiping the image, it just reminds me of the true God. It's an aid to worship. And they remind the God that I worship. I don't worship the image. The image only causes me to think of the true God. Truly, that's what happens. But God is against that. And the reason I read from uh, Exodus 32 with with the Egyptians, I mean, uh, with the Israelites, they created a calf because at the end he said, tomorrow we'll have a feast for the Lord. Now, it's not like the Israelites forsaken God and they went somewhere else. No, they just wanted an image to remind them of the God that led them out of Egypt. But So they were going to use this calf as a source, as an aid to worship the God that they believe in. Well, let's put it this way, ladies. Suppose one of these days you come home, you find your husband. Again, this is just an example, embracing another woman, right? He's been caught. He says... Honey, this is not what it looks like. I was just embracing her because she reminded me of you. I was just kissing her, but really I was thinking of you. How many ladies would buy that excuse? I don't think a woman in America will buy that excuse. And what we say when we have these images, Lord, wait a minute, don't get the wrong idea. I was only worshiping this image It reminded me of you. I was only worshiping this thing it reminded me of you really I was worshiping you When you worship anything else or you use any means other than the true God it does not satisfy God For I the Lord your God am jealous God look in Exodus 20 uh, verse 5 For I the Lord your God am jealous God I am a jealous God and sometimes we have the idea jealousy is is a bad thing well there's Absolutely, yes, it's, it's, it's wrong. For example, an athlete shouldn't be jealous of another athlete because they don't own the world of athletics. A musician has no right to be jealous of other musicians because there are many musicians in the world. No artist can be jealous of any art, artist and so on. No minister or pastor should be jealous of another pastor because we don't own ministry. But you see, God has every right to be jealous because there's only one God. There's only one God, the true righteous and godly jealousy. You see, God has made heaven and earth. In serious sense, God is jealous of his people when they worship other gods. His holiness cannot bear a false rival. He demands to be first in the glory that belongs to only him. We're, We're the same way if you think about it, husband and wife, right? We don't want to be a rival to another man or a woman. Adultery enrages, you know, a husband or wife. So idolatry is spiritual adultery. Look up Psalm 78, 58, 59. It says, For they provoked him, God, to anger with their high places. What are the high places? Little false worship places that they created. And moved him to jealousy with their carved images. When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel. Put yourself in his place. Imagine you are God. You created everything. You know, and it says inhabitants are like grasshoppers. You created everything. And then your creation starts worshiping a frog or a beetle or some other, other thing. And we talked about last Sunday, you know, there's other things. Priority of money, sports, family, uh, intellect, other things. God has every right to be jealous because... God demands our worship. God will not be king for a day. God is not moonlighting deity with a duplex for a throne. His palace is not a duplex. You see, we said last week, we talked about the centrality of God. God will not be a part-time God. He will not share his throne, his glory with any other. Uh, how much more does God, that you know? we talked about thrice holy God of Israel, have the right to be a jealous God? There's no other. And another reason God is against the use of images because really what man is doing is when he worships an image, he's worshiping the work of his own hands. He's worshiping himself. In Romans 1, verses 21 22 says, Because although they knew God, and they did not glorify him as God, again, I'm talking about God's glory, nor were thankful, they became futile, and their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." That's form of self-worship. We become fools. When a man worships the work of his own hands, really, again, he's worshiping himself. You see, an image worship humanizes God. It defiles God. Image creates a fixed standard of God. He is just limited to the image you created. An image is fixed. It's unchanging. I don't know about you, but... As I grow my understanding of the Lord, my concept of God should expand and mature, shouldn't it? So I'm not sure about you, but image is limited. Well, God is unlimited. Image is local. I'm surrounded by, you know, whatever my environment I can come up with to view God. He's universal. Image is temporal. He's internal. Image is material. God is spiritual. So when we do all these things really what it does is distorts, distorts God. Now, I want to say this. When the Bible says we're not to make any graven images, it does not forbid religious art. If you wear a necklace with the cross on it and you have it and wear it as a jewelry, that's fine. But if you get to the point where it says, hey, this reminds me of God or gets me to God, that became an idol. You know, sometimes I see... See things in, hanging in rearview mirrors—a cross, you know—that oh, reminds me of God. Well, that becomes an idol, you know. Sometimes we use other things, not necessarily a cross. Uh, one of the things that was very strange to me when I came to this country, I saw somebody's mirror. They there was hanging a rabbit foot. I said, "What is that?" They said, "It's a rabbit foot." I was like, "Why would you have a rabbit foot?" Well, it's a good luck charm. How is a rabbit foot a good luck charm? The rabbit wasn't so lucky. So, so those things, it could be other things that we use, you know. uh, We have a coin, somebody has a coin in my good luck charm. That becomes an idol. And again, God is not against images. Because if you look, if you study the book of Exodus, he told Moses, for example, the Ark uh, of the Covenant, how to design it with gold, and there's different images. If you look at the tabernacle, the temple that was he he was to build, there there was embroideries, there was flowers and images. He even gave his proper instructions for the candles, how they should look and what should be on them. Uh, the, the the temple of Solomon, we briefly touched on Solomon. It w- it was magnificent. It was beautiful. Uh, the 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 garments for the high priest. God explained the hems of those garments had to be a certain way. They had bells. They had they were beautiful. Did God condemn all these things? No. Look at 1 Kings 9:3. It says, And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer. This is Solomon. I heard, we you know, we touched on Solomon last time, how his, he had this beautiful prayer and God answered it and descended on the temple. I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. God approved what Solomon did, and the temple was adorned with beautiful images. But God is saying that man should never make an image to worship. But God is not against religious art. For example, we can use as a religious art not as a means to worship, but art of education. When we teach Sunday schools, what the cross is, but we never worship it. In all this, we must worship God. In order to worship God, we must. Worship him in spirit and truth. So, we cannot have any image that can illustrate God in order for us to have the proper conception of God. And because not only the proper conception for God is necessary to worship, uh, I want to talk about persuasive communication with God. You see, in Exodus 20, uh, uh, verse 5, it says, You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. You see, when we worship, what it does is our worship communicates what God is like. We teach when we worship. And if we worship wrongly, we're teaching the wrong lessons about God. If we worship an image then I'm teaching those who watching me that God is like this image, when God is not really like that image. False worship corrupts the minds of those who observe of what's being done. It corrupts those minds. Now when God says the iniquities of the fathers are visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation, what God is talking about here is false worship. False worship is horrible, heinous. It's hateful iniquity, but not only does it corrupt a person who does it, it also corrupts the generations that follow. When the Bible says God visits the iniquities of the fathers upon the children, God does not mean, so pay attention here, sometimes people misunderstand this, God does not mean that the children are held guilty for their father's sin. You know, Deuteronomy 24, 16 says, For the fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. God is not talking about the guilt. God is talking about the results. If you look at Numbers 14, 18, it says, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiven iniquity and transgressions. Then there's that word, but. But he by no means clears the guilty... Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. You know, it's all over Scripture, but, and there's more verses, but we're not going to get into those for the sake of time. But how are the children affected by the iniquity of the fathers and forefathers? See, if, even though your children are not responsible or gui- guilty for a father's sins, they are influenced by it. They are influenced and affected by it. You see, sin is like a Trojan horse that destroys us from the inside. I want to give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. You know, last time we used King Solomon, now we'll use King Uzzah. If you turn with me, in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 26, verse 16, it says this. This is a good king, but he, when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. Why? For he transgressed against the Lord, his God, by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So King Uzzah was basically, he was a good man, but he made a terrible mistake. How did this king sin? Did he steal? No. Did he get drunk? No. Did he commit adultery? No. He worshipped God. In the wrong way. He sent by worshiping the right God, but in the wrong way. If we continue in verses 17 through 21. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were 80 priests of the Lord valiant men. So you have he's going in there that all these pastors are coming after him now. Eighty pastors are coming after him. Follow me here. And they withstood king as they said to him, It is not for you, Uzzah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzzah became furious. So here's pastors are correcting this man, saying, You're not worshiping the right guy the right way. This is not for you. So he becomes furious with these pastors. I'm kind of trying to translate it in, into our terms. And he had a censor in his sense to burnt incense. And when he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord, besides the incense altar. And then Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. so they thrust him out of the palace. Indeed, he also hurried to get out, because the Lord has struck him. King Uzzah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Jen Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. So he worshiped God the wrong way, got in the church fuss with the pastors. Now because he's a leper, he can't come to church. For the rest of his life, he was not in the temple. And his son takes over So he tried to worship God, the right God, in the wrong way. And when he worshipped God in the wrong way, God laid judgment upon him. Maybe he thought, I'm the Canaanite, I can worship God any way I want, right? But up to this point, he has abused worship. And his sin found him out. And there's a father who is suffering, right? He's suffering now. He was a leper until his death. He never went back to the house of the Lord. So now his son comes into power. And look at Second Chronicles verse, uh, chapter twenty-seven, verses one through one through. Jotham was twenty-five years old when he became king, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jashubah, and daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Uzzah had done, although he did not enter the temple of the Lord, but still the people acted corruptedly. Now, this is a very interesting thing. This man was probably a fine young man. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But now his son remembered all these unpleasant feelings and his father had, right? And I'm certain that his father was very angry, had his feelings hurt, discussed this all at home. And this is what we sometimes do. We turned off by the church because they go home and Sunday morning they roast the preacher, the teacher, Sunday school teacher or something, right in front of the kids. And kids are sitting there. And here's a boy whose father was hurt in the church because he tried to worship the right God in the wrong way. Now, he was a good man. He believed God, but what's one thing he didn't do? He didn't go to church. He stopped going to church. I believe in God, but he did not enter the temple of the Lord. He never went to church. You see, here's a father worshiped God the wrong way. Now his son is picking up on it, saying, hey, I believe in God, but guess what? I don't need church. They're just mean over there. I'm not going over there. So he wouldn't go to the house of the Lord. Is the story finished? No. We see the, father, the, the Uzzah, we see Jotham, the son, and now we see the Ahaz, the, the grandson. In Second Chronicles uh, chapter 27, verse 9, it says, So Jotham rested with his father, so now he passed away, and they buried him in the city of David. Then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. Well, what was he like? Well, he was a servant of the devil. If you look at Second Chronicles uh, chapter 28, first two verses, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned 60 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done, for he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and molded images of Baal's. How is this man now worshiping idols? In chapter 28, verse 4, it says, And he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places and on the hills under every green tree. Now, here's a man who's truly worshiping false gods. His dad had no use for spiritual worship. Jotham. He didn't go to church because Uzzah was hurt. Not only that, but if you look at verse 3, in chapter 28 says, "Burn incense in the valley of Son of Hinnom and burnt his children in the fire according to abominations of nations who the Lord has cast out before the children of Israel. So there's this god, Malek, It's basically a, a, a big statue of, I don't know what you want to call it, a cow. And, and it has a big old belly that's opened up and there's a fire inside this belly. And what they do is just throw children in there. He was throwing children in there. How... how? How is that? The God had this visiting iniquities. You know, I fought this with my father, actually. He's sitting there. I was kind of hoping he wouldn't come. Because now I have to admit my guilt. But I was arguing because I didn't believe this. So when something bothers me, I, I search the scriptures, I study, and so forth. And I see here clearly... Circumstances, series of of events. First, Uzzah, his father, misguided worship. Son picks up on it, neglected worship. Then his son does, you know, the grandson doesn't even do anything. How, How is that? Again, in Exodus 5, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers, on the children of the third and fourth generation, for those who hate me, dear friend, there's nothing more than corruptive than false worship. Falling to failing to worship God as we ought to worship is a terrible thing. You see, what, what a father does in moderation don't kids seem to do like in extremes. A crack in the door that we give to sin, our children will open it completely. The Bible stresses the importance of acknowledging the iniquities of the forefathers. If you look at Jeremiah 14.20, this is how you deal with them. In Nehemiah 9.2, it says, We acknowledge your Lord our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Why are they iniquity of our fathers? Why do you not just say our wickedness? And then Nehemiah 2, he says, For that those of Israelites' lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. By acknowledging the iniquities of the fathers, children agree with God that they are wrong and able to deal with them scripturally and spiritually and building disciplines to avoid and repeating those things. And again, I argued with my father for... For a long time in some other pastors, and you know, sometimes I said you guys don't even know what you're talking about, and it never happens. But let's use a live example. Everybody knows who Bernie Madoff is, right? Committed a horrible crime. Committed a sin, he's in jail. How is his family suffering? Family have to change names. Some people don't even want to associate with them. One son committed suicide. And there's lots of Examples. Why? Because what their father did. We all know the great David of the Bible, right? Why was his household a mess? Because he committed adultery and he was a murderer. God said, the sword will not depart from your house. So we see King Solomon, we talked about. What was his downfall? Women. And if you study the scriptures... Even Solomon's son, he also took up a whole bunch of wives. That Scripture prevented this. Uh, Abraham and Lot, right? They went separate ways. Lot looked at the land and said, oh, that's awesome land. And I'm, you know what, Abraham, I'm going to go over there. But then he got involved with what? Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He was living there. He didn't have to. Why was he staying in that sinful city? Prophet was good, everything's good. So when God leads him out, what happens? What do his daughters do? What do his daughters do? Why? Because he chose to stay there. So there's many, uh, take this example. All of us are suffering right now because our ancestors committed a sin. You're suffering, health, whatever you want cancer, all those things, that's a result of sin because what Adam and Eve did. We're suffering. It goes down. We're not answering for those sins, but we are influenced and we're paying the results of those sins. That's what happens. That's what exactly what we inherited from Adam. And, and you know, it's also true when you go to the doctor, right? They give you a form, say, have your father or your you know, they get your family history. Do you have cancer? Have you had any heart attack? High blood pressure? What about your mother? What about your father? They ask all those questions. Why? Because you inherit that. And But I want to tell you something. For the law of sowing and reaping, because that's what this is, it works both ways. It works both ways. The promise, if you look at verse six in Exodus, is more powerful than the warning, because it's a blessing that last not just for three, four generations, but for a thousand years. In, in other words, it lasts forever. In Exodus 26 says, "But show in mercy to a thousand to those who love me and keep my commandments. you sow in the spirit, you'll reap in the spirit." And I think another young man is a great illustration in the Bible is Timothy. He became a great preacher of the word. Why? If you look at Second Timothy chapter one five through six, it says, "When I call a remembrance the genuine faith that's in you," he's talking about Timothy, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. I am persuaded it is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying of my hands. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? And the Psalm one twelve verse first two verses says, "Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in His commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of their upright will be blessed." And the faith I have in me, I want to have. I want that faith to be in my daughter. Matter of fact, I want it to be even greater. So we have proper conception, and we have persuasive communication. And the last thing I want to talk about is prayerful contemplation of God. If we look back at verse 6 in Exodus, saying showing mercy to the thousand, those who love me and keep my commandments. See, the reason it's a great commandment, because it has a positive and it has a negative. If it's a positive commandment, it will have a negative with it. You see, God condemns false worship. So what does that mean? Same time, true worship is in the commandment. For example, if I say, don't stay outside, what does that mean? You you come inside. So every negative has a positive. Says, I don't worship God in a false way, then that means worship God in the right way. You see, don't worship with these images, worship God in spirit and truth. Don't stay outside. That's what worship is, prayerful contemplation. And why is it so important? Because God desires worship. We already read in John four twenty three says, But the hour is coming, and now, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such worship, Him. The great heart of God desires worship. Do you want to please God? Do you want to please God? Do you know how you please God more than anything else? You worship. Believe it or not, let me give you some example. There's some people that can sing better than I can. Believe that. I, I think even the flying geese that fly over and you hear them, they sing better than I can. There, there's people that can preach better than I can. There's people probably that can play piano better than Dan can. Can you believe that? But you know what nobody can do better than you? Worship God. Worship God. Worship God. Isn't that wonderful? You see, in this respect, we're all equal. So many, you know, we're able to out-sing, out-preach, out-think, or out-give maybe, but none of us, none of us can out-love one another when we're worshiping God. It's just wide open field. So God desires worship. Not only desires it, He deserves it. Why? Because worthy is the lamb. Worthy of worship. If you look at Revelation five uh, 5.12, saying the loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings. And not only he's worthy, he demands it. In Matthew 4.10, we see Jesus saying uh, to Satan, he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Our first duty is to be worthy and serve the Lord through worship. Worthy worship of the Lord. The Lord comes infuses us up, fills us up with His Holy Spirit, and we worship the Lord. Now, it's tempting to think we're talking about idols. They're the thing of the past. Right? We don't have any idols unless you think you go overseas, missionaries or somewhere. There might be idols there. But we took, we, we looked at last Sunday some of the gods, right? The food, the belly was their god. We talked about pleasures. Pleasures were their god. Uh, the nets, remember that the, the fishermen started burning incense to the nets, and they worshiped the nets. But here's what I want you to think about, that we do, that, but we don't think we're creating an idol. It, it, it's only something we think idol is something we can touch or feel or something like that. It applies to the heart. And what I mean by that is our hearts are always busy fashioning up idols, believe it or not. And John Calvin, he said that one of the things about the human heart, is that it's a perpetual factory of idols. You see, rather than worshiping God in spirit and truth, we reshape God and we remake him until he is safely under our control. Right? We don't have any physical idol. But what I mean by that is we start to manufacture our own gods. We choose to worship God. Some of God's attributes, but downplay some others. We look at Christianity today in some denominations, you know, what we call Bible call sins, they call acceptable. Why? Because they created a God that doesn't really exist. God says no, they say yes. Well, you just created a God. And, you know, it reminds me of a story, actually. I just visited a friend in the hospital, and a lot of his health problems are due to his diet. Okay, I'll say it. And I'm like, I thought you went to the doctor, and he told you to change your diet, and you should do all this and that and that. Did you do any of that? Why are you laying in bed again? You know, what what did you do? He said, I switched doctors. That's what most of us do. We like God, but then God says, you can't do this in your life. Ooh, well, I'm just going to put that to a side. And still glorify God. Well, what you're doing is creating an idol. Because that's not the God of the Bible. You created an idol. So we don't have the I am that I am. We have I am what I want you to be. Right? That's creating the idol. We don't often think about that. We make excuses uh, for ourselves when we commit sins. Oh, it's not such a small sin. It's okay. The white lies and things like that. And many evangelicals today downplay, downplay many of the essential biblical doctrines. They say doctrine is not important anymore, right? Well, how is doctrine not important? It separates the truth from, from a lie. And we are tempted to worship the God in the way we want Him rather than what He actually is. We tend to emphasize things about God. We like to minimize the rest. We put a place high priority of, uh, for example, knowing the Bible, but yet there is no love in us. Well, what's the point? We do all this And we have a false God. So how do we we worship God the right way? What can save from our own private idolatries, if you would? You see, rather than remaking God into our image, we need to be remade into His image. His image. There's lots of things that I don't like that God says, but guess what? God said it. That's it. There's nothing I can do. I can't argue with you. Sometimes people come to me and say, what, what, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible calls it a sin, so why would you ask me to agree with it? Now, we love the sinners, but we hate the sin, but we have to be honest about all things. You know, there's denominations, for example, that I said homosexuality is accepted. Well, we can't kick them to the curb and say you're a sinner. No, that's not what God says. We're love the sinner, hate the sin. We're to tell them that the true God of the Bible calls that a sin. There's people that don't believe in the Trinity anymore. They say Jesus is just a prophet. No, God, Son, Holy Spirit, that's the God of the Bible. So you can't take that away. We can't create what we want so we can live comfortably. Because in the end, you're going to show up in front of God. He don't care. He's going to say, I showed you in the Bible. I showed you in the Word of God what it is. You made your own idol in your head. So, <laughs> in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 49, it says, And we are born to the image of man of dust. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. How does that happen? God does this by bringing us into a personal Saving relationship with Son, Jesus Christ. God commands us not to have any images because God has already revealed Himself in an image. What was that image? Jesus Christ. In 1 Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So the only true representation we need God in this revelation was given to us in this person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know God, if you want to meet him, then you need to know his son, Jesus. And when I tell you that God made you to worship, it's his music to his ears, and he's alone worthy of all praise, but there's nothing you can give in your life. Before, folks, before long, it's all going to be over, right? Honestly. And he's alone worthy of our worship, and your life belongs to him Have you given your life to Him? That's where it all starts. Have you given your life to Him? And let's end with this psalm in Psalm 96, verse 9. It says, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of what? Holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Amen? Amen. Father, we ask that these moments might purify our minds so that we might have the right conception of you. We pray that we might be willing to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, that you shall give us the freedom to do so with confidence because we come in the name of Lord Jesus. And we come through the prescribed way, through his sacrifice uh, on the cross. And there may be those who are here today who never received you as Savior, people with wrong conception of God. They have made him into their own image, and we ask, Father, that you will enable them to receive him in faith today, Christ, to acknowledge their need to depend upon him, and that they might believe in you and you alone. And as we leave this place today, Father, I ask that your grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.